today's episode. Some promising news in the fight against coronavirus. A graduate student in Maryland believes he may be the first person successfully immunized against the virus. David Ratch is taking part in a clinical trial for COVID-19 vaccine made by Pfizer. Ratch, who doesn't know for sure if he got the actual vaccine or a saline solution, says since he had a slight reaction to his second dose, he believes he is one of very few people in the world vaccinated against COVID-19. David Ruck is one of the first four guinea pigs. He got an experimental vaccine against the coronavirus Monday. Hello listeners, I'm Annie and I'm Q, welcoming you to a special episode of Grad Gamut, a podcast that delves into the lesser known dimensions of graduate student life. We'll be bringing masters and PhD students from all different backgrounds to share what it is really like to commit to several years of graduate education to pursue a dream. We will celebrate the highs, share the challenges, and come together as a graduate student community. Most importantly, we will amplify real graduate student stories to inform advocacy and policy making. Today's episode, we were fortunate enough to have a conversation with David Ruck, who was recently featured in the local news as one of the first individuals to test a COVID-19 vaccine. David is a third-year PhD student in immunology, epidemiology, and public health. He says his arm remains famous on the internet, but what he really wants people to know wasn't shared in the news last May. That's what we wanted to share with you today, an inside look into the black box of vaccine development. David will demystify the process and let us know why it is so important for all of us to do our part to stop COVID-19. He will explain the essential role of graduate students in labs and hospitals around the world as well. Throughout our time together, David used metaphors that transported us from the sterile clinical settings we most associate with the response to the pandemic by conjuring images of the Wild West. But before we all go out west, let's begin with something a little more mundane. A simple email mixed in with all the rest that caught the eye of graduate student David Rock. David opened up an email most of us would have dismissed during the life-changing havoc of the COVID-19 pandemic. Early May, I opened my email and it's an email blast that was sent to the entire university saying they're starting a COVID-19 vaccine trial here. I'm currently sitting at home. I'm trying to do some science communication over Facebook with my friends and relatives, and then I'm also helping people make masks. But other than that, I'm really useless, seeing as most of my lab stuff is still frozen in a freezer somewhere on campus, which I can't get to until this stuff is over with. So that's when I picked up the phone and called the CVD to volunteer for the trial. And to provide some context, this is the time that we are at the height of the first peak of the pandemic with so much unknown. Back in April, it's like cases were spiking everywhere in the US. New York's hospitals were being overwhelmed. Similar situation was happening in New Orleans and Detroit. So it's just like we had been probably at home about a good six or seven weeks at that point. And just every time you open the news in late April, early May, just seemed to be worse and worse news happening kind of thing. Just because cases were still growing up or starting to stabilize. But at that point in time, we did not know about it. 
And just every time we looked at the news, it was a higher death count coming in the next day. So at that point, um, I found out about the vaccine trials happening here on campus the same way I found out about anything else happening at that point in time. I got an email that was sent to the General University campus. And for those of you who don't know, University of Maryland Baltimore has the Center for Vaccine Development. And it has been working in developing vaccines for many different pathogens from cholera to salmonella to malaria vaccines for well over the last 40 years. We all want to see a viable vaccine come to fruition, but few of us would feel comfortable enough to be a trial participant. Not David. With his background in immunology and epidemiology, he was eager to help the effort. Right after I got the email, I called the number that was provided for the CBD, and I did an initial phone screening, meaning they wanted to verify that, yes, I was in the right age range and that I didn't have any obvious uh, disqualifying medical conditions because that was the phase one. They wanted relatively young and healthy volunteers. Having got through the uh, pre-screen, um, I was scheduled to come back the next day to campus for an in-person thing where they would do some medical uh, checks as well as do the informed consent process. David has to pass multiple tests to prove he's healthy and ready to be a trial participant. So when I got to campus the next day, um, they took my temperature, I washed my hands, they asked the standard questionnaire of, have you had a fever in the last two weeks? Have you had any loss of taste or smell, et cetera, et cetera, all the different. Once that was done, because even though I may have felt perfectly fine and didn't think I had COVID before, a lot of COVID cases are asymptomatic and you could have been exposed in the past. And since they're trying to see if the vaccine is effective at producing antibodies that block COVID virus, it makes no sense to have somebody who's already has the antibodies floating around their bloodstream assigned to your vaccine group. So they did an initial check using one of the uh, rapid diagnostic tests where they poke your finger, they just test to see if you have IgM or IgG antibodies against the virus. I turned out I didn't have any circulating in my bloodstream. So from the rapid test, I was negative, and then they followed that up with a blood test that's more sensitive at being able to see that. At this point, the trial wants David. But does David still want to go through with it? He does. And what awaits is a lengthy consent process. And surprise, more blood samples. And then I went through the informed consent process where I talked to the uh, clinicians running the trial. Uh, if I had any questions, I was able to ask the questions. Also detailed really in large quantity, what's this vaccine trial for? What they're hoping to achieve? What are the procedures we have in place if this or that happens kind of thing? And it was a very big document. It was like 30 pages. So I took like a good 35 minutes to read it. But by the end of it, I had all my questions answered and I was like, yeah, I'm still interested in participating. David, having signed off and confirming his commitment, is in for a long-term back-and-forth test, test, and test again, a very thorough and safe process that spanned over the course of a week. Okay, your blood work came back, ask you the questionnaire, wash your hands, a nasal swab. It's not as bad as I was expecting. The same procedure again, temperature check, two swabs, ask you the questionnaire. It's not as bad as I was expecting. In the sample. Hour later, the technician came back. I was like, nope, this part, everybody's negative. So they're like, all right, we'll proceed to vaccination. With all systems checked and ready to go, David is undeterred and ready for actual trial. Being the first people that were being vaccinated for this vaccine trial, they had us for an extra long period. We had four hours of wait where we we're being watched by the nurses. Wait, did he just say four hours? Yes, he did. Wow. Then what happened?
After four hours of monitoring, David was released until he had to return the next day. And then again, week after week. His commitment was really admirable given he had no idea whether or not he was given a test vaccine or he is in the control or placebo group. But then he got a clue the second time he received a dose of the vaccine three weeks later. And then after the second dose, I had something that was similar for many other people. I felt a little bit feverish the second day. Had like a 99 mild fever. I felt kind of tired. My arm definitely hurt more the second time around. The reason for this is in the context of what makes you feel sick when you are have a bug kind of thing. It can be a combination of both the bug making you sick, but also your own immune response making you sick. So a lot of symptoms that we associate with the flu, fever, redness, swelling, those are all responses that your immune system itself can do. So it's like, in this case, I didn't get the virus in the vaccine. It was just that little bit of an mRNA. But when it built up all that protein inside your cell and your cell starts going, wait a minute, where is this protein coming from? Who ordered this protein? What is this protein kind of thing? It activates those immune cells, which then go out and target it. It was very striking to us that as David was talking about participating in one of the first vaccine trials, he talked about it in a very matter-of-fact manner. He didn't seem worried or scared at all about the possibility that an error in the vaccine can harm him. This led us to a very interesting conversation about how vaccines are created nowadays, which involves explaining it via... A couple of wanted posters. Coming up next, let's delve into David's expertise, Immunology 101, for all of us who, as he says, have little to no idea of what is actually going on throughout the vaccine development process. Something I found out over the last few months in talking with friends and relatives is there's really a black box surrounding how a vaccine gets approved. It's just all of a sudden you hear, it's like, oh, there's a new vaccine, but if you're not an immunologist working on a campus that has the Center for Vaccine Development, you don't know all the different steps that are happening behind the background. I'll try to keep the immunology simple for everybody. The main principle of how a vaccine works is your immune system has, over the course of time, eventually found a way that no matter what pathogen you get infected with, whether it's a virus, if it's a bacteria, if it's a protozoa, any sort of pathogen, that it can, one, once you get infected with it, develop an immune response against it that will help you no longer have the virus running around your bloodstream. But then two, make a memory against that specific virus, more specifically the proteins that that virus has, which will then serve as these little wanted posters that go around your bloodstream so that you ever get infected with that virus again, your immune system will be ready to respond, kick its butt, and then you'll never have the symptoms of disease again. A vaccine has two aims in order to be successful. The first is to develop an immune response to the virus and to create a memory, a wanted poster, if you will, to be alarmed when the immune system sees the proteins of the virus. 
what vaccine tries to do, and this has been happening for a long time, is it tries to mimic this process that happens naturally by not putting in the virus itself that will cause you harm, but like get your immune response to de develop these wanted posters ahead of time without all the nasty side effects of having a virus running around destroying your lungs. So that if in case two months from now you are exposed to the virus, you are already have those immune cells ready, they're ready to go and kick its butt and keep going. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, named vaccines in the top 10 greatest medical achievements of the 20th century, attributed to saving millions of lives and decreasing the dangers of diseases like smallpox, measles, diphtheria, polio, mumps, tetanus, and rubella by over 90%. So why are folks afraid to participate in vaccine trials? And why are some people hesitant to get vaccines in general? We decided to investigate and find out. We learned from the College of Physicians in Philadelphia that opposition to vaccines has existed as long as vaccines themselves. In the early 1800s, Edward Jenner conducted cowpox experiments and the smallpox vaccine resulted. As the first widespread inoculation efforts began, several groups opposed the vaccine and pointed to religious and sanitary concerns as well as political reasons. Skeptics would persist as the smallpox vaccines and many others were developed and proved to be one of the best ways to combat current widespread disease and create community immunity towards infection prevention. Vaccination is order of the day in Glasgow as the city lines up in the battle against smallpox. Outside medical centers, thousands queue up for voluntary vaccination. Reports that vaccine is running low have been denied. More supplies are being flown in daily. As the outbreak reaches its most critical phase, vaccinations near 200,000. Doctors and nurses work in 12-hour relays to combat the scourge. Polio outbreak. That was the ominous headline which faced the city of Hull on October the 5th, 1961. The task facing the city health department was enormous. Speed was vital. The medical officer of health set the target. 300,000 men, women and children to be vaccinated in one week. In 1998, Andrew Wakefield published what The Guardian refers to as a dynamite paper on vaccines. Dynamite because it gained a lot of attention quickly, and dynamite because it dealt a lot of damage. His paper, produced with 12 colleagues, linked the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine to autism in children and was utterly false. Although the study had a tiny sample size of just 12 human subjects and a faulty design, the speculative findings were widely publicized and the damage continues. CBS News correspondent Richard Roth is in London with more on this stunning reversal, Richard. Good morning, Maggie. Well, this is much more than just an argument about science. This has been a dispute with real impact on society. Many parents listened when doubts were raised about the safety of the common MMR vaccine against measles, mumps, and rubella. Wakefield's work was quickly refuted, and Wakefield was discredited. But his work continues to be central in the United States anti-vaxxer community. The anti-vaxxer community can be found worldwide and contributes to the resurgence of outbreaks seen of diseases like measles and whooping cough. In 2018, the CDC warned of a measles outbreak in the United States, where infected individuals were found in 21 states, and the majority of those infected were not vaccinated. This makes the anti-vaxxer conspiracy theories very dangerous and contributing to a distrust of science, 
a distrust of proven medical treatments, and with more people fighting not to have their children vaccinated. Now in 2020, we are facing a global pandemic with COVID-19, and a vaccine remains one of the most viable possibilities for mitigating the crisis. Hopefully, David's story is one more voice helping to assuage the anxiety and fears that needlessly surround vaccine development. Many, there's many different types of vaccines. Some of the early vaccines were basically you take the virus, you inactivate it in a certain way, and then you inject the miscellaneous proteins into your body and that develops the immune responses and they go out and make memory cells that go out and make antibodies and also have T cells that will target those cells and go on. A different way approach, for example, in the yellow fever vaccines and some of the nasal uh, flu vaccines you get every year is they have a very, very weak version of the virus, meaning they've weakened it enough that it doesn't cause disease in most individuals kind of thing. So it's like you put it into your body, your immune system's like, oh, this is an easy kill, kills the virus and continues and makes an immune response against it. Live with WHO in Geneva. And we are crossing to Dr. Sumia Swaminathan in India, our chief scientist. Who's Though vaccines have been around for quite some time, we now have novel ways. And most excitingly, this time around, we have two completely new platforms that have never been used in humans before. RNA uh, vaccines, where you're, you're straight away taking the messenger RNA or an RNA of the virus and injecting that into the body. That then has to go into the, to the cell in the human body. And then the messenger RNA gives the message to the human cell to actually start making the protein of the uh, virus, which then induces the immune response. And then we also have DNA vaccines. So these are two novel platforms. The others have been used before for different diseases. And so what scientists were able to do, as soon as they, they saw the genetic sequence of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, which was made available by Chinese scientists on January 11th through a public platform called Gisade, they took the genetic sequence and started creating these vaccines first in the lab, then it goes to small animals like mice and hamsters um, and guinea pigs. Then normally it goes into larger animals and non-human primates like monkeys before it comes to human beings. In this case, of course, a lot of these steps have been accelerated. And if you're working with a vaccine platform that you've used before for other disease uh, vaccines, then it's relatively straightforward to move into human trials because you've had experience before. As David so has shared, vaccines are pretty amazing, as is the science behind them. Thousands of people around the world are working on the vaccine for COVID-19, and graduate students in labs and clinics across the nation and across the globe are some of the unsung heroes in this effort. So why David had a matter-of-fact approach to getting the vaccine trial? For multiple reasons. One, yes, this is a related area of study as far as the immunology. There's nothing super mysterious going on as far as what the vaccine is trying to do as far as an mRNA-based vaccine versus when you're looking at a day-to-day -day classroom study setting. So that stuff, like the science behind it, was 
not particularly frightening of any sort. And then another reason that no, wasn't particularly scared was one, I'm relatively young, I'm relatively healthy. So it's like, if you're thinking of like everybody in the population that could have taken place in a vaccine trial, the risks that are taking place are relatively small for my case as a younger individual, especially when you consider that at the time, cases were spiking, our hospitals were being overwhelmed, the most vulnerable among us were dying. So it was a situation of getting through the pandemic safely requires getting a vaccine that's efficacious and safe and protects you against a SARS-CoV-2 infection. But the only way you get to a working vaccine is the vaccine has to go through trials. So was David glad he participated as one of the first in the COVID-19 trials? One of the things that I'm happy about in the case of being one of the first people to participate is we help speed up the process because if recruiting people for the trial had taken longer, it would have taken longer to get to the phase two and the phase three respectively. Proud of my participation and I'm glad and I would do it again in a heartbeat. Before we end this special episode featuring David, we want to make one more stop. Zooming out and taking a bird's eye view on the importance of research to develop life-saving processes and tools, David will explain how much of the research is generated by mostly unsung heroes, graduate students. research in general, graduate students are definitely the unsung heroes along with the research techs in the lab. Because like a lot of the, that were coronavirus specific labs that had been working in SARS-CoV-1 or MERS before SARS-CoV-2 came around, a lot of their work was being done by the lab techs, the uh, graduate students in the lab, as well as the postdoctoral students. What can be hardest for graduate students and others in the thick of research work is the boom and bust cycle of science support. This is demonstrated through federal and state funding. David notes that sadly, it may take a disaster in order to get a surge like we have seen now for a pandemic response. One of the issues when it comes to immunology and epidemiology is funding tends to happen right around when there's an epidemic and then it dries off slowly afterwards. So a lot of the coronavirus labs here in the US started up after SARS-CoV-1, the early 2000s in uh, China and then in Canada. So there was a bit of research, they were working on vaccines and then funding kind of dried up and they started shifting back towards flu. Then in 2010s, when Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, MERS, came around for its coronavirus, you saw another brief flurry of activity related to MERS as far as developing a vaccine and therapeutics and other things. And then funding started drying up again. So it's definitely a boom and bust cycle as far as the coronavirus research lab go. David lets us know that his own lab is facing some of these challenges, as are the labs that his lab collaborates with in Africa. 
So our lab's affected in different ways. Like we collaborate with colleagues in Nigeria and Malawi. So international airfare has been shut down. So getting samples out of those freezers into here to Maryland is completely stalled for the foreseeable future. Clinical trials happening on campus that are not COVID related have also been suspended. So a lot of the uh, samples we are working with in collaboration with other partners are just not being gathered. So individuals that we would have been following up for, for their three month and six month visits, probably we won't be able to collect those samples and we'll have to start again. One message we are hearing loud and clear is how uncertainty for immunologists and epidemiologists means uncertainty and anxiety for scientists. These scientists include graduate students and this has a compounding negative impact for everyone because it means delayed responses to crises such as the pandemic that we are living through right now. We are funded currently, um, so my salary is still being paid, but a lot of the work that gets disrupted in the sense of what we're able to do at the bench and what we're able to learn and what we're able to use for that next future grant proposal, it's this problem that's happening to labs everywhere across the US because you only have a certain amount of money, you only have a certain amount of years to spend the money. So it's one of those challenges that I don't experience very much, but I know the postdocs and the PIs working in the lab are definitely more conscious about like, okay, we've lost most of this year. We're almost at the end of August. How do we move forward timely with what we have? It would be nice if it was a such, if we didn't just keep doing the same mistakes we've been doing for the last 20 years, as far as the boom and bust cycle. But that requires um, a lot more people outside of science as far as the cooperation goes. So it's very much is a thing where both for NIH and NSF, a lot of the funding that comes in is from federal agencies and that's set by Congress. And that in turn is set by who we elect to Congress and what their, what their different views are on as far as funding of science in general. One of those situations where there has been improvements over the years, but then even if one situation for a few years, funding is increasing in general for science, it eventually will stall and then eventually budget cuts will come around and decrease it. And it's one of those things where it's like, it's hard to prescribe a solution because there's probably not a big solution. It's a systemic problem. And systemic problems are systemic because they're really hard to solve and there's not a quick, easy fix. It takes a lot of work by a lot of many different individuals from many different walks of life over many different years to be able to address the issues. Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode of Grad Gamut, the Wild West of Vaccine Development. We hope you enjoyed. A big thank you to David Rock for coming on the podcast and opening up the black box of vaccine development and graduate student roles in immunology and epidemiology research. We also want to thank Hossein Hieri, our sound designer, and Chase Williams, our audio master. We want to give a shout out to Mary Gardner for her mentorship and the support from the Virginia Audio Collective at the University of Virginia. We also want to thank Willie Smith for designing our logo for the podcast. Please learn more about Grad Gamut at our website and social media outlets, and let us know what you think. Check out our next episode via Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud.